I'm your host, Seth Day. I use he, they pronouns, and you're listening to Rad Child Podcast. Today, we are talking a little bit about sexual orientation. This was kind of a big topic, so I decided to split it into two parts. Today is our first part. So I'm going to, I have some lovely guests with me today, and I'm going to invite them to introduce themselves. Um, This is kind of a lot, so if you need me to repeat any of it, let me know. This is a little bit more than we usually do. So we're just going to do our name and pronouns, where you're from, your relationship with kids, your sexual orientation, if you're comfortable sharing, a relationship to the topic, you know, whether uh, what you're, you know, sort of relationship to the uh, the topic of sexual orientation is. My name is Jason Sanciato. Uh, my pronouns are he, him, and his. My family and I live in New York City. Uh, we have a son who's about to turn 14 years old, whom we adopted uh, from foster care when he was 11. I uh, identify as gay sexual orientation, and um, you know my career has been in uh, LGBTQ activism um, on a number of levels, particularly with a focus on um, LGBT youth and their experiences in schools and um, from a, both a policy and a research perspective. My name is Lauren Schneider, and I'm so thrilled to be here. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. I'm originally from New York City, but I currently live in Seattle with my family. I've been working with kids in some capacity since I was a teenager, but I've been a public school teacher for the last five years, and I've been a mom for two years. I've been teaching about sexuality in some capacity since 2010, but as I mentioned, I'm a public school teacher. I teach health education, which includes teaching uh, about sexuality, and I've worked with students from ages 9 to 18, and also I've worked with college-age students before. My health education did not include any talk about, you know, uh, sexual orientation. So um, I appreciate that that's, you know, a, you know, hopefully kind of more of a given these days. Thank you for doing that work. <laughs> All right. And uh, last but certainly not least, Marianne. My name is Marianne Scarfo. I am... My pronouns are she, her, elle. I live in Montreal, Quebec, Canada. I have three kids and I live with my partner, um, identify as a lesbian, and I'm a youth mental health worker and uh, activist and have been uh, working with young folks from 12 to 25 years old for the last 15 years. So I come from a parent and a professional kind of dyad on the subject. <laughs> that's awesome. And that's that's one of the things that I love about um, just talking to people from all sorts of different, you know, backgrounds. And a, a lot of folks who work with kids are, are also parents, just, you know, by nature of loving kids. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's I just I love hearing I'm part of why I do this is I just love hearing different different perspectives. But anyway, so we talk a lot on on this podcast about sort of you know topics that might be trickier to talk to kids about, um, or you know we might have to prepare or think a little bit about these kinds of things before we have conversations about them. But so I'm curious uh, just to get things started, and this doesn't have to be related to the to- this topic in particular. But has there ever been a time where a child asked you a question that you weren't necessarily prepared to answer, or maybe it caught you off guard? As I mentioned in the introduction, uh, my husband and I um, adopted from the foster system. So our son was 11 when he uh, became a part of our family. And one of the first mornings um, after he'd come home with us, he knocked on our bedroom door and had him come in and he peeked his head through the door and he said, when you guys have sex, do you ever pee on each other? 
I wish that I could have seen, you know, there's a, a, a picture of the look on our faces when, when that happened. You know, we, we, we were aware that, um, you know, he had witnessed um, sexual violence and, and, and other things that might, um, you know, make his uh, awareness, approach, curiosity different than, than kids his age who hadn't done that. But that was completely unexpected. And, and you know, we were sort of like, okay, right, remember where, where parents were going to be sex positive, not shaming? And we're like, well, there certainly isn't anything wrong if that's what two consensual people want to do with each other. Like, we were trying to figure out the best way to answer that. Uh, uh, yeah. That's so funny. The things that kids come up with, that's part of the reason I love asking this question is because kids come up with some like wild things out of left field that for them are pro- like, it's totally normal. One, one of the, one of the, our previous guests said that uh, her son woke her up. I can't remember how old he was. He's, you know, maybe like four or five and woke her up at like 3am and she was like, what's wrong? And he goes, how do two people get married? Like that was so important at 4am, you know, it's, oh my gosh, it's so funny. But anyway, uh, Lauren, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I was going to say that uh, prepared to answer was just an interesting way to phrase the question because there were definitely times early in my career when I was taken aback by a question, not because I didn't like know the answer or have an age or, or have an age appropriate answer after a few moments thought, but because I just didn't expect that the child would have the background knowledge to be able to ask the question. But five years down the road, nothing nothing a kid asks me surprises me anymore. I think one topic that sort of surprised me by how many kids have asked me about it is the topic of sex noises, like why people make noises during sex. And the the thing that took me aback about it or like that surprised me about it was not necessarily the question but how young the kids who were asking the question were they were in fifth grade in fifth grade as young as young as fifth grade and when i get the question i give the age appropriate answer which is that when two people are having sex one way that they can communicate that they're enjoying it is by making noise but my my takeaway, my more serious takeaway from it is that students are being exposed to sexually explicit content at younger and younger ages, but hardly anybody is actually having conversations with them about either understanding what they're seeing or just like how to use your judgment to walk away from something that you think you might not be ready to see or what to say if someone is showing you this and you don't want to watch it. And I think that this is where the parents and caregivers come in because so few children are having sexuality education in school, parents and caregivers need to be prepared to have age appropriate conversations about a variety of topics and to do so in a way that's factual Um, And that communicates your beliefs and values without being judgmental or shaming. Yeah, absolutely. One great resource that comes to mind is there's this uh, really great book called Tell Me About Sex Grandma by Anastasia Higginbotham. That is, it's a picture book, so it's for younger kids. And I mean, I not I don't necessarily think this is something I would casually pull off the shelf, but if a kid had questions um, or was starting to ask questions about things like that, it's a really wonderful resource. And it doesn't like it doesn't insert values into it, which I think is so wonderful. It sort of leaves room for you 
you know, it's, I mean, I guess it does have values in the sense that it says things like, you know, that masturbation is totally normal and, th- you know, things like that. Um, but to me, that's not a value. That's a fact. But, I, you know, I guess some people would disagree with that. <laughs> but, you know, it doesn't, I, I guess what I mean is that I think it leaves room for you to have those kinds of conversations and it's sort of a gentle guide for those kinds of things. Yeah. And beliefs and values doesn't necessarily mean like foisting your own opinion on a child. It's more like it's a family that, for example, it's our value that consent is important, you know? Yeah, absolutely. That kind, that kind of value. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Marianne, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I guess for me, it's been, I have a 10-year-old who uh, <laughs> is entering her pre, pre-puberty adolescence, and, and we have a lot of conversations around sexuality. I was I had a male partner before, and then now I have a girlfriend, and so, you know, we've always been very open about that. I think that biggest challenge for me and that where I get caught off guard and have been several times with her is understanding how the world perceives her presentation uh, in the way she expresses herself and how she gets dressed. And it's like trying to explain her consent to wear what she likes, but then also being able to handle what is given back to her by the world around. And, you know, it's, it's very hard off the cuff to come up with a really, you know, simple answer as to, I don't know why the world is misogynist, but this is how it works. And uh, so I find those, those moments where I'm like, oh my God, this is so long. How am I going to do this in like, you know, three, four minutes before she gets bored of hearing me talk. And I think with my, my young folks that I work with, it's often these questions that they haven't had the space to ask. So they come with questions that they're too scared to ask their parents, their caregivers, or the pro- other professionals in their life, because I work in a really informal way. So it feels a little bit more like a friend conversation. But, you know, I try to just respond with the least amount of reaction and more of a curiosity to kind of just unpack a little bit of the question. Yeah, I think that I, I personally relate to that in the sense of being um, being like a gender nonconforming trans person. Like sometimes, you know, I'll I'll wear crop tops or I'll wear, you know, dresses and, but I have to decide, you know, well, if I'm, where am I going? If I'm going to the grocery store, do I want to necessarily maybe deal with someone cornering me in the frozen pea section, which has happened before and ask me if I'm a man or a woman, you know what I mean? Like I, you have to sort of decide and think about, which is unfortunate, right? Cause you just want to go out and wear a crop top. <laughs> it's hot. But yeah, I think that that is definitely, you know, a tricky one. And I think like what you were saying is totally makes sense where it's just like we have to sort of balance. We have to think about, you know, how other people might react. And it's not about like, well, you can't wear that. It's just like, do you have the emotional energy today to potentially deal with that thing happening? You know, so that, you know, it makes a lot of sense to me. So I was actually thinking about this just like personally recently. And I thought a couple of months ago, I went on a couple of queer parent groups and I asked um, a bunch of people just out of, you know, out of curiosity, I told them it was for podcasts, whatever, uh, but sort of when, how old they were, when they sort of knew that they weren't straight versus when they kind of you know, and a lot of people are still like, I think that sexuality is very fluid. And, um, you know, some people are like, I still don't know. And I'm like 40 something. But I am curious, sort of as when you were a kid, you know, when did you realize that there were other options when it came to sexuality besides, you know, hetero or heterosexual, excuse me? Um, options is an interesting word in this context. And I, I think uh, I was raised a fundamentalist evangelical Christian. And so I think my first introduction to anything other than what I saw 
which, you know, sort of heteronormative fundamentalist Christian vision was when I, I probably asked my mom to explain to me what the Sodom and Gomorrah, their interpretation was, right? So, so immediately any, anything outside of different sex marriage, uh, only having um, sex after marriage, only having sex to procreate, you know, I, I really didn't, didn't have that sort of the things that I saw maybe on television, but my, um, my mother uh, and then eventually stepfather were very, they kept a close watch on what I watched on television to try to prevent that. And they also um, prohibited me from listening to anything other than contemporary Christian music. And um, so I really did not begin to understand that there was a, a world outside of what I was raised in until I was a freshman in college. Um, and, and this was back in 1993, 94. Um, you know, this was back before the, the, the age of um, high, uh, highly effective antiretroviral treatments for HIV. And so that introduction was still within the context of uh, HIV. And so even then I saw, oh, well, you know, here are, you know, uh, gay men portrayed, but look, they're catching AIDS and they're dying just like my, um, my church and my mother said they would. So it took me a while after that. It wasn't actually until um, my um, parents had kicked me out of the house because the ex-gay therapy they put me in didn't work. And I had moved across the country to live with my father and his wife and my brothers and uh, started going to um, the uh, youth program at the local LGBT community center that I really got to see positive, normal, for lack of a better term, depictions of, of people who were other than heterosexually identified. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for sharing all of that. Um, I think especially like generationally too, I think there's a lot of differences. Like even for me, I, I grew up in the, you know, in the nineties and I know, and I also grew up, um, I grew up in a Christian family and with a Christian family. And I, I don't think I really knew, like, it's weird because I, like I, when I was in high school, there were like, you know, there were the token one or two out gay uh, kids in high school in the, you know, little town that I grew up in, but I don't feel, feel like I realized that I was allowed to do anything like that until I was in college. I was like, well, they, you know, they exist, but like, I, that's not, not, you know, like an option for me for lack of a better term. But yeah, it's, it's funny the way your brain like sort of compartmentalizes those things. Uh, but anyway, uh, Lauren, do you have anything to add to that? I think Seth, you and I are a little bit closer in age so I also grew up in the 90s. I was in elementary school in the 90s. Um, and I was probably eight years old when I learned that there were sexual orientations other than heterosexual. Um, but I didn't, but I only knew about gay and lesbian. And the reason I knew about it was because I looked it up in the dictionary, nerd that I was and still am. Um, a friend actually had accused me of being a lesbian because I gave her a hug. And to, in my mind, I had learned that lesbian meant a woman who loves other women. And I was like, yeah, well, I'm going to be a woman someday. And I love women. I love men. Like, I love, you know, I love everybody. So, of course. So, I didn't, like, get it yet. But looking back in the dictionary, it says that lesbians have sex with other women. And, you know, at eight years old, I wasn't having sex with anybody. So I marched right back to her and was like, you're wrong. I'm not a lesbian because I'm not doing this. And the dictionary says so. In in subsequent years, uh, my consciousness sort of grew around sexual orientation. But 
no adult really talked to me about it. I read a lot. And I read, in particular, a book that I, I have now on my shelf just because it was so life-changing. It's dated, it's pretty dated now, but it was called Changing Bodies, Changing Lives. And it was sort of like the teen, our bodies, ourselves. I think it's by the same people, actually. So it's dated now, but but at the time it was like the most progressive, forward-thinking, open, honest, non-shaming, non-judgmental book I'd ever I'd ever read. It really helped me understand both my own sexuality and other people's sexualities, and it also helped me realize that like my body, my desires, my behaviors, they were not bad or shameful, that they were normal and a natural part of growing up. Yeah, that's awesome. Books are great, great resources. I I love books so much and I'm I'm so thrilled that there are, you know, there's a lot of media like that now for younger and younger kids um to start those conversations. Anyway, uh Marianne, do you have anything anything to add? Uh yeah, so I think my my first memory is probably being about 10 years old and thinking like, oh, you know, I really love my girlfriends. Like they were like my number one priority um, for a very long time. But also I went to elementary school in the 80s, high school in the 90s, maybe one or two queer kids, but not really a presence that was enough to convince me that that like that direction was a possibility, you know, um, everyone was experimented. Uh, my friends and I were very heavy in experimenting, but it was a joke. You know, it was a very passing feeling for them, but not for me. But because I didn't see myself being able to kind of pursue, I didn't see it reflected in anywhere, really. I just kind of was like, oh, okay, so I'm just gonna, you know, do what I do. Um, and then my brother came out at 16 and my mom was like, all right, that's fine. And then I was like, oh, well now I can't come out. She can't have two gay kids. Right. (laughs) These are the things that you think when you're like, you know, 17, 16, you're like, it's like, that's too many for one family. It's not happening. (laughs) And so, yeah, so I actually only really came out, out, uh, probably about like, three years ago, but always existed in queer spaces as like another identity I had. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's been a complicated journey and I think it is for everyone, um, especially when you're coming from, you know, like I'm 41 now. So when I was like 10, 11, I mean, no one spoke about queerness in any way, you know, not in the way we do now anyhow. Yeah, absolutely. For those of you who identify as something other than straight, um, how old were you when you had an idea that you were not straight? You know, it's it's interesting to answer that question because we can't help but um, but look at it retroactively. Um, you know, knowing what we know now, so it's sort of like, well, when when did I maybe have some inkling of something, but I didn't know what to call it. I remember being maybe nine or ten, and my best friend who lived next door found a Hustler magazine and was showing it to me and was so excited about the women's breasts. And I, and I do remember thinking to myself, what's the big deal about breasts? My mom has them. You know, I, I, I had um, very, you know, similarly to um, uh, what Marianne mentioned, you know, I, I had very close, I felt very close connections to 
my um, male friends, and I usually always had like one best friend, you know, so like serial monogamy. I had serial best friendships where it's like times in my life uh, that were very, you know, very, felt very intense, very close. You know, uh, it actually makes me think of, of one of the other questions that you you had asked about examples in real life media where uh, of couples or families that weren't heterosexual. You know, uh, my husband is a um, performer, and he was in a show a number of years ago with um, a really hilarious and good person, Jim J. Bullock, who um, got his start in the 1980s in a TV hit TV series called, called Too Close for Comfort. And, you know, he was carrying forward, you know, from, from pre-Liberace and onward, sort of the, the comedy stereotype of the fae best friend, right? The, the neighbor, right? Who was just funny, you know? But uh, what was funny, of course, was that that person was, was talking and acting in a, in a sort of non-gender stereotypical way. And, you know, I remember watching Jim Jay in Too Close for Comfort. I remember watching him when... He was the center square in Hollywood Squares for years, and I, I watched with my mother, uh, uh, and this was before she, she had remarried. And I uh, recognize now that I saw then something that was different, that I, uh, you know, maybe felt some curiosity um, or, or connection with. Yeah, I think I think it's funny that you say that sort of retroactive looking back because I connect with that a lot as a trans person. Like I when I when I first came out, I had a lot of people in my family, you know, telling me, you know, are you sure? And putting a lot of seeds of doubt in my head and and so I literally made a list. I went and I thought all, you know, I was like, and I made a list of things that, you know, I was like when I was four years old and I said, I wanted to be a daddy when I grew up, when I, you know, when I, you know, when my friends called me sir as a joke. And I was like, that, that feels great. Um, you know, and so it was funny, like, it, it's true. Like I don't necessarily, it wasn't like I was four year old and I was like, and which does happen for some four year olds, but it wasn't like I was a four year old and I was like, I'm a boy and I'm adamant about it. But like, there were things that make a lot of sense. Then when I go back and look, I'm like, yeah, that that tracks. Well, and, then, and that common experience is, is something that that um, raises uh, something that's really important to me, which is that even now, um, American culture sexualizes sexual orientation, and so there the the immediate connection between particularly well being being gay, but I guess you know any orientation because of the way that we talk about it and. and you know, uh, before we started recording, there was a conversation about, you know, having babies of different genders together and saying, oh, that they're boyfriend and girlfriend, right? This, this sort of sexualizing of, of kids. Um, I think even hyper more so, being gay is about anal sex. And, and, that, and so that makes it intrinsically challenging for kids, for adults, because that is the default. Like, oh, I, I can't possibly, you know, think that or, or understand that my child might be, you know, gay, lesbian, trans, because, oh, well, that, you know, that's about sex. My child isn't having sex. You know, that's changed over time, thankfully. Um, but I, I still think it's by and large the rule. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, I don't want to veer too far away from the original question, but I think that that also, it also has a lot to do with the difference between sexual orientation and romantic orientation, sexual orientation being who who you would like to sleep with and romantic orientation being who you would like to be in a relationship with. And, you know, not, uh, you can be 
homoromantic and not be you could be asexual you could not want to even have sex but want to date men you know what or women or whatever like you know what i mean so i think that there's also that big uh there's a separation in those in those two things that a lot of uh a lot of folks kind of forget about or just don't know about you know have never learned about i mean i think i was probably in my you know almost 30 before i even knew that romantic orientation was a thing <laughs> so i mean i can remember probably being like elementary school aged and just really my, you know, and it's, I really appreciate, um, Jason, like the idea of like looking back and piecing things together, because I think, you know, uh, when I look back at the intensity in which, uh, I really liked my friends, I had one best friend for like almost 20 years who now looking back, I'm like, Oh, I was so in love with her. Like, that's insane. (laughs) But, uh, I think it just took a long time to, there's a lot of pieces to reconcile, you know? And, and I think a gift that, uh, I think my kids have, and just by existing now versus, you know, 20 years ago is that there is way more um, visibility of what love, romantic love, attraction, like different families, whether it's like foster families, uh, you know, two parent, one parent, whatever the dynamic is. Um, And when I was younger, I don't remember that visibility at all. And I think I wonder what my path would have been like had You know, I always have those like wonderings, like what would it have been like if someone said, oh, you're just in love with her. That's fine. And I would have been like, oh, okay, great. (laughs) I don't have to spend 20 years trying to figure it out. So it's an interesting way to kind of reflect, you know. Definitely. I think that that just made me think about I had a friend who, again, was a friend that we were totally in love with each other, but we weren't allowed to be in love with each other because we were both girls and we were both raised in um, a very, you know, sort of strict Christian household. So like it wasn't even an option. And it was just so funny to me because she, her, she was like a year older than me. And so she went off to college a year before me. And she came back from college like, oh my God, the reason that I, I figured it out, why I don't, I've never been into all these boys want to date me. And I'm like, I don't want to, I'm a lesbian. Like it took, it just like, it was never, you know, even it was like, again, it was like that parallel thinking of like, well, I'm in love with a girl, but I can't, it's just not a thing. Even though it's happening, it's not a thing that can happen, you know? But then it's funny looking back where she was like, oh, that makes so much sense. <laughs> You know, how early do you think kids can, you know, can know is a strong word, but, you know, have that idea that they are are not, might not be straight? Oh, it depends. Um, I think that uh, what I describe is that retroactive understanding of when I might have known that I was different, but that's entirely different than, you know, my son who two weeks after he became a part of our family, he came up to us. Uh, and, and so, and I think among the reasons why he had such a different experience than I did is that, first off, he was in a, in a somewhat unique environment still in parenting where, where he you know, has two dads. Also, that uh, he can casually watch most television and in some way, shape or form, see, you know, mention of, um, you know, LGBT people um, now more so because with us, there, there are some better trans representations on television, but um, still obviously not the same and, and have something to connect with and identify with. You know, he, he's told us that one of the reasons why he was able to come out was because he now had the, the experience to relate to. He had the language to use which that he didn't have before and you know and, and i think that's why we see 
kids, um, I think particularly more so um, transgender kids who are, are uh, able to identify something much earlier and the, for those who happen to be in supportive environments, um, get the information and, and care they need to be able to understand more than what we think or what we've been told kids should know at a certain age. Uh, statistically, we know that most young people figure out what their sexual orientation is during their adolescence, which makes sense. But individuals are not data points. So I certainly think it's possible it's possible for younger children to know they're not straight or at least have an inkling that they're different in some way um, from other kids their age. I think the, and this sort of goes back to what Jason was saying about how the environment has changed and how it, how not it used to be in many places it still is, but if you're in an environment where straight is the only option, it's going to be much harder to figure out that that's not you. Since this podcast is directed towards parents who are talking to their kids about things, and, and again, going back to how our culture has a tendency to like sexualize kids or push heteronormativity onto them, for, for parents who might be listening, to resist the urge to, to do that, to, to not do that, to, to give your kids room in their lives to express their sexual or romantic feelings in, in comfortable ways without making assumptions or giving implicit messages that one type of sexual or romantic orientation is better than another one. So, you know, if kids often talk about who they want to marry, you know, I want to marry this person, that, and that person, like say, like saying things like you can't because, you know, that, that because that person is a different that person is a different gender than you unless the person they're saying they want to marry is mommy or daddy it's like well you can't marry mommy or daddy because they're your mommy and daddy as uh, many kids will say that by the way that i'm sure the parent every everyone on the thread is a parent so so they know that but but saying things like oh that's that's nice you know when you're a grown up what kind of person do you think you might want to marry what would their qualities be focusing more on who the person is rather than like implicit assumptions about what gender that person is going to be. Absolutely. I, I also always like to add the if I'm like, cause a lot of people will be like, well, this sort of traditional answer or comment would be, you know, Oh, one day when you're married or one day when you have a husband or wife or whatever. And I always add like one day, if you, you know, choose to be in a relationship or if you choose to get married because, you know, to not erase, you know, aromantic people and asexual people. And also just the idea that not not everyone gets married, even straight people, not everyone gets married. <laughs> you know, there's, there's a really great book called Families, Families, Families by um, Suzanne Lang and Max Lang. And it, uh, it's one of those books that sort of it's with animals and it just sort of goes through and it's like, you know, some people have two dads and some families have, you know, some kids have one mom and some kids are, you know, only children and it goes through all these things. But one of the things that is in that book that I've never seen in any other book is that one of two of the spreads, one of the spreads is some kids' parents are married and some kids' parents are not. I'm like, yeah, like we never talk, you know, we don't talk about that, at least in media often, you know, we're seeing all, and I'm thinking, I'm thinking about Peppa Pig because my kids that I nanny are obsessed with Peppa Pig, so much Peppa Pig. But anyway, there, you know, it's like all, you know, same sex couples who are married. It's a mommy and a daddy and a mommy and a daddy and a mommy and a daddy. And, you know, so I, I like that representation as well, that not every, you know, not every 
couple or, you know, unit is going to get married? I think it's an interesting question because I have had the privilege of my kids attending a daycare that has, you know, all kinds of families, uh, queer staff, uh, you know, um, families where another child has transitioned. And so that is like an immense privilege um, to have them see kind of like different experiences that aren't reflected in your kind of heteronormative day-to-day. You know, once they hit public school, we know that disappears kind of. Interestingly, you're talking about the marriage thing. And it's funny, in Quebec, no one really gets married. I mean, no one gets married here. It's like too much of a headache. Everyone's like, forget it. We'll just live together forever. (laughs) So it's an interesting thing because my kids don't do that. I was with their dad for 12 years. And now I've been with my girlfriend for we've been living in the same house for like two years. And there was not, you know, there was no big reaction, but they've always been in dialogue about, well, I love her or I love him and I can do this and I can and I can. And I think the privilege has come from the educators around them, from our community and then from books. And I realized the privilege that to have that kind of surrounding, you know, where you have queer family members or queer friends or a community. But if you don't, Books are like the next best thing to have a conversation starter, you know, and just exposing the idea that nothing is a binary, not even sexuality. Like you can be out at 14 and then change your mind at 19 and that's okay. And just the fluidity of attraction, you know, and, and uh, desire. Um, And I think that's something that, Young kids are very good at and grownups are not very good at. Uh, (laughs) They seem to do pretty well with that kind of stuff. They're like, oh, yeah, that's fine. And then everyone else who's older than like 25 seems a little bit more rigid. (laughs) But so I think it's an interesting question because I don't know if that is like an adult projection of like the binaries we carry around. And when you when you say to kids, oh, you can, you know, like little three year old, uh, you know, identified boys will put on a dress. They're not going home thinking that, oh, what am I a boy? Am I a girl? They're just like exploring. And it's through curiosity and flexibility, I think, that they can really optimize, you know, their kind of world lens. Absolutely. And it's funny when you were talking about the books and the representation being so important, it's it's funny because I, I babysit for um for a family uh, and they, they have a, gosh, I want to say like eight and 12 year old ish who both identifies girls and the one, the younger one still likes to have a bedtime story. She still likes to read picture books. So I, uh, I'll, I'll bring picture books and they, they happen to have two moms and I brought a book once. It was actually about uh, the, the story was about a transgender girl coming out to her friends, but it just so happened in one frame in the beginning of the book, she's sitting and she's driving with her two moms. And that little girl was like, Whoa, they have two moms like me. Like I've never seen that before in a book. She was like blown away, you know? And I was like, like, that wasn't even what the story was about, but she noticed in that one frame, that one picture, she was like, wow, that's so cool. And uh, so even for kids who, you know, have the real life exposure, it's so important to feel represented too, right? And to have that media and to be, you know, to be showing them other other kinds of things as well, which is why I always like, I have so many books about different kinds of families and different kinds of kids. And, you know, where again, like that story wasn't about a two mom family, but like, hey, they had two moms 
it's not like intersectionality, you know, exists. We can be more, a trans person can also come from a queer family. So I was talking about um, a little bit earlier how I had sort of asked, sort of put out feelers and asked folks, you know, about uh, a little bit about how and when they had come out and things like that. And it was interesting because a lot of people knew either knew sort of how they identified or at least knew that they didn't identify as straight from a very young age, but didn't come out until they were like, you know, a lot across the board, a lot of people didn't come out. So they were much, much later. And so I'm curious, you know, how we can help make kids in our lives feel comfortable to talk, to talk to us about these things without at the same time, like pressuring them, you know. I'm going to jump to a bigger issue here, which is about um, the empowerment and, and respect for youth. Uh, you know, we live in a nation that's one of one of the very few that would be considered, you know, modern uh, to not sign the um, United Nations. I'm forgetting the name of it because I want to talk about it. Declaration of the Rights of Children. There you go. Thank you. Yes, you know, the Declaration of the Rights of Children, right? And one of the things that I think having uh, adopting an older child from the foster system helped me pushed me into up the sea is is always taking a step back and thinking what is it that is right for this child or my child at this time that I know of to make them feel empowered to help them understand how to own and, and both a responsible but in a um, also in a, a joyful way um, their sense of self um, their understanding of who they are in this world what they like what they want to do and then oh well now that I've done that now I have to help them understand how to do that outside of my home in a place where, you know, that is the, where they're not going to get the same response. You know, so another, another piece of advice I have, and I think this also comes to me at least from, from training that I received on sort of trauma-informed care, parenting and care, is, is not making it about myself, yourself as a parent when the child, but, but about the child. You know, I, I'm so honored and grateful that you trusted me enough to share that information with me. Thank you for doing that. I'm, you know, I'm very proud of you. How, how do you feel about that? What do you think about that? Or, you know, okay, well, what, what, is there anything that you need that I can do to support? You know, those sort of open-ended probing questions. And I know that's admittedly hard for uh, a parent, I think, particularly parents who you know, have had the experiences that, you know, those of us on, on, on this podcast have had to take a step back from the um what seems to be some the stereotypical norm right the shock the the um you know my my uh i have a, a, a gay brother and a trans brother my dad's uh kids from a, a different marriage from my mother and um i remember when my um when my trans brother before um that he uh, came out as trans uh, my, uh, his mother telling me, oh, well, I just always thought that I would be able to go to their wedding and see them in a wedding dress. Or like, that was all about them. And, and there's an, it's important, right? Self-care, your own journey to go through that is important. But I don't, I think that there should be a boundary around working through that with your child. Um, maybe even an older child, you might think, oh, well, they're going to understand, right? You know, they're, they're an older teenager, and they know that they have a better understanding of, of give and take of, of, of information and how it affects different people. No, you know, your child is not your therapist. 
Absolutely. And I think that that's also, you know, part of, of self-care. Like I also had someone in my family who I had to cut out of my life. Um, I, I have since reconnected with them, but I cut them out of my life for about four or five years. I, you know, and a lot of people in my, I'm from this big Italian family where like family is the most important thing. And, and I was sort of being made the villain of like, how could you, you know, destroy the family like this? And I'm like, she's the one who did the bad things, like you know? And I, but I think that a lot of times, you know, people sort of get a lot of slack for cutting people out of their lives, but it's really important at the end of the day to take care of yourself and do what you need to do to protect yourself. But if I may, on the flip side of that, right there, there, uh, my husband and I were in a unique experience. I mean, there are LGBT folks who have kids and then in a smaller portion of those will have kids who come out other than heterosexual. And we, we were confronted when in the first six to nine months after our son came out to us. He would be upset, we weren't quite sure, we would talk, he's like, well, I'm just, I'm not sure that I'm gay anymore, but I don't want you to be disappointed in me. And we're like, what? <laughs> and it was like, oh, right? You know, he, he has gay dads, and he somehow got it into his head that if he turned out not to be gay, that he would somehow disappoint and let us down. And then on top of that was the layer of being a kid from foster care who is and will always be desperately afraid of being rejected. So if he wasn't gay, does that mean that, you know, his dad would reject him? So it's very complicated. Good luck, folks. One thing I just wanted to add on to the end of what Jason was saying is that if a child expresses one thing and then expresses something different or doubts or, or not being sure, like, affirm that it's okay, that it's okay to feel differently about who you are over time. That it's okay to have different feelings about yourself or, or different understandings of who you are as a person as you grow and change over time. That like letting your kid know that that's okay. And just again, um, communicating about your, your hopes that if they want to be live a partnered life, that the person that they're with is a good, kind, respectful, loving person regardless of what gender they are and what gender your child turns out to be. Keeping it about like what you really want for them without projecting your your assumptions about them, about your child onto them. Yeah. I mean, I have two different perspectives. So like, I think as a parent, I have, I really firmly believe in community parenting and I have a lot of amazing um, aunties Um, who are like the closest, uh, dearest people to our family. Also, my kids know they can come out to them or they can go to them if there's a question they're not ready to ask me directly, which I think for me, especially because I work with adolescents, um, is a really important thing because my trust in that person to communicate the same value in terms of like responses and care, but also alleviating my child from having to do that big confrontation right away uh, is super important. And so, and that I'm not the only person in the world um, who wants to know about these amazing things, you know, or who can answer these questions. Um, And I think that's important because, you know, as a parent, you have limitations sometimes and you know, you know, having a, you know, an alternative queer life isn't always easy. And, uh, you know, having different people's opinions and and care is important. Um, In my work, kids come out to me a lot. 
especially trans youth that I work with. And we do a lot of work around, you know, uh, uh, like role plays. Like we do a lot of pretend conversations together. Um, And I also am really keen on working with people with lived experience and connecting those young folks to that. Because I think even professionally, I have limitations to how far my knowledge goes, you know. But I think the more openness and the less shame in our, if we can regulate our reactions when people say things, uh, whether it's coming out, whether it's questioning, whether it's like, you know, very simple questions to very big ones. Uh, I think our responses, you know, in our nonverbal and verbal uh, usually predict how the rest of the conversation is going to go. And so I think if we could be well regulated (laughs) and mindful, we're we're pretty good. Yeah, I, I think about that a lot um, as someone who works with younger children, right? Kids often uh, will mirror our energy. So, you know, if a kid gets hurt and we go, oh my God, are you okay? And they start to freak out a lot of the times. But if we, you know, if we're very calm and we're like, oh, you know, that that looked like it was a little surprising. Are you all right? You know, a lot of times they sort of will mirror that energy. And I think that we think that that only happens in young kids, but it, you know, it happens with, you know, us until even adults, you know, for some people. And I, I feel like, you know, but especially with kids, I feel like it's important to remember that how, you know, how we react in the energy that we're giving off, you know, sends a message. And often, you know, kids will sort of reflect that energy. Hey, folks, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Rad Child Podcast. Uh, just a couple of announcements today. The first one is actually very exciting, which is that we are officially one year old. Woohoo! So thank you so much for your support during our first year uh, and for your continued support. Um, in honor of our one-year birthday, we are doing a very special giveaway. Uh, you can get full details about that on our Facebook page, which is just Rad Child Podcast. There are a number of ways you can enter, um, either by reviewing us and rating us on our Facebook page, reviewing us and rating us on Apple Podcasts, or just by sharing a post uh, about how much you love the podcast on Facebook or on a relevant group, Twitter, Instagram, wherever. The giveaway ends September 1st, and the randomly selected winner will receive a care package full of some awesome stuff, um, including a book of a children's book of your choice. We have a selection of five books, um, a large button of your choice from our merch, uh, a set of stickers, and also one of our limited edition coloring books, of which we only have a handful left. Um, so they're really special. So yeah, definitely don't miss this opportunity and uh, feel free to enter, tell your friends. Um, we're, we're really excited to be able to have a little way to thank you for your support during this first year. Our second announcement is just a reminder about our awesome partner, uh, A Kid's Book About, which is a really amazing publishing company that publishes books all about the kinds of topics that we talk about here. They have a new one that just came out about racism, actually, and they have one coming out about death as well. Um, so definitely check those out uh, and you can do so by going to akidsbookabout.com and if you enter the uh, promo code radchild upon checkout you can receive five dollars off uh, so definitely check them out they have really really great books um, so besides that it's just the usual stuff uh, you can follow us at radchild podcast on facebook instagram and twitter if you want to contact us you can do so by emailing radchildpodcast at gmail.com or you can go to our website www.radchild podcast.com under the contact us section 
Also in that section is information about how to be a guest if you're interested in that. Uh, please reach out to us. We're always looking for new guests for episodes. Um, you can also, on our website, take a look at all our merch that we have. We've got buttons, stickers, postcards, all kinds of great stuff. Um, and you can also do that by going on our Etsy, um, which is just Radchild Podcast on Etsy. Uh, last, but of course not least, um, if you would like to join the ranks of Emma, Kai, Alex, and Sarah, you can do so by going to patreon, patreon.com forward slash Radchild Podcast. There you can choose to make a monthly donation in any amount starting at $1 a month. Um, and you can get some really awesome rewards like bloopers, care packages, um, all kinds of different cool things. So definitely, definitely check that out. We really appreciate all the support we can get. Um, it just helps us to cover our costs and uh, keep us running. So thanks so much for that. All right. So without further ado, I'm going to hand it over to Rebecca and Crystal. Do you wish more picture books truly reflected your family's values? Have you ever thought you found the perfect book, but when you got it home, it completely missed the mark? Shift Book Box is a picture book subscription service for kids ages 3 to 8, built around themes of social justice and centering diverse characters and creators. Each box features two beautiful picture books as well as expertly crafted discussion guides. We know that families want to engage kids in conversations about social justice topics, and we recognize how challenging it can be to find the right books and to feel supported in having these conversations. We find the books. We provide the prompts. You get both delivered to your door. Subscribe today at shiftbookbox.com and use the code RADCHILD. RADCHILD. All one word. RADCHILD. RADCHILD. For 10% off your first order. Shift Bookbox. Curating little libraries. Cultivating big change. I feel like in general, we, you know, you hear a lot of stories where it's like, oh, you know, a kid will come out and the parents will be like, oh, we always knew, you know, you were playing dress up when you were a kid or you had tea parties or whatever. And I'm, I'm curious, you know, if you think that's, it's helpful or harmful to sort of make these kinds of assumptions based, based on, you know, those kinds of things. I think for parents or caregivers, it's, it's very normal to think about the kind of person you want your child to be like. But I think it's also our responsibility to give our children room to grow into the person they're going to eventually be. And that means not foisting our assumptions onto them, even if we think that their sexual orientation is obvious in some way. Because when we, because when grownups say things like, I always knew my child was gay because they did XYZ, usually it's about something gendered. Like, I always knew you were gay because when you were a little boy, you put on my high heels and dress. And, you know, a little boy can put on a high, can, can dress up in high heels and a dress and not be gay. And a little boy can do that and be gay. And, and, and that kind of behavior is not inherently reflective of sexual orientation. And I also think that when a parent or caregiver communicates their assumptions to their, about their child to their child, even if they mean well, they're inadvertently communicating what they want their kid to be like. And so the kid will feel pressure to conform to the parent's expectation. So just being at Mar- Marianne talked about mindfulness, um, being mindful of your assumptions and being careful not to foist those upon your child as your child grows. 
because your kid will be who they will be. We, we have very little control over that. And giving them the room to grow and express who they are in any given moment, I think is really important. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like you were talking about not not conflating, you know, gender expression with sexuality. Those are two totally different things. You know, it's funny, that's part of the way that I explained, uh, tried to explain sort of transness to my grandmother was, you know, she she couldn't understand how I could be a man and still be feminine. And so I, I asked her, I was like, well, if grandpa wore a dress, would he still be a man? She was like, well, yeah. I was like, well, there you go. You know, it's not, you know, it's not about pre- gender and presentation or two or two different things. And just in the same way sexuality right and gender presentation or um how we express ourselves are two totally totally different things and just to reiterate like having assumptions in one's brain is normal like every we make assumptions all the time the danger is in if or how those get communicated to kids and what that means for putting pressure on one's child to conform to one's expectations in some way yeah, absolutely. It was the same thing. Gosh, I can't remember who who was talking about it. The idea of like, oh, you know, but I, I think it was Jason um, who was saying like, oh, but I always wanted to see my kid in a wedding dress or that that kind of that those kind of expectations, you know. And that's and personally, like that's something that when I was first coming out, like my mother said to me, and I was just like, okay. I mean, I could put on a wedding dress if it makes you feel better. Um, but uh, but you know those those the way that we convey those kinds of expectations definitely, you know, can put pressure on our, on our kids for sure. I mean, this one hit close, hits close to home because we met our son via a heart gallery, uh, which is a uh, online uh, website that most states, large cities have where kids who are available for adoption who are in um, the foster system are um, usually profile photos, tons of video, a description. And there were things about um, my son's uh, video and other things that were put into his description that his caseworker wrote that cued us into the fact that he might be gay, bi, or trans. And that was part of our thinking. Uh, you know, I mean, like, all I, can, all I can describe it as there's this instantaneous knowledge, this instantaneous thing that I knew that, that I had just found our son. And it was independent of what his sexual orientation and gender may or may not be, but I also couldn't help but consider that broadly and what the information that I was being given, which was very different than information that comes from you know, someone who might either um, give birth to a child or adopt a, 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 an infant. But we did talk about it, not with him, but between ourselves and with our friends. And we did say, oh, wait till you meet him. You'll see that you know he's, he's going to come out sometime. And I, I regret now doing that because I realized that that was my own perspective, my own read of the information that I, I had. And I, I can't help but think that, that, you know, that does play a role in, in the things and the cues that our children pick up from us. And um, so, yeah, I mean, that, that's, I think that's what I would just add to that, to what everyone else said, you know, from my own experience. And I wonder now, if, you know, maybe did, did he pick up on that and was that among the reasons why, as he was coming to understand what his sexual orientation meant to him, he was worried in some way that 
we would think differently, right? Because was he picking up from us that there was something, there was something that he was getting a response from us regarding his sexual orientation, um, and was he was that response was that thing he was picking up affecting how he felt about himself and us? And so there's a big lesson. Yeah, absolutely. And I think just to like reiterate what. Lauren was saying, I think that like making those assumptions is totally normal. Um, Like we can't, you know, stop ourselves, our brains from going where they go. But I think that like, like we were saying, it's sort of about how we, you know, how, how we talk about those things with our kids and things. And I think like what you were saying about like having conversations with it about other people, with other people, you know, is a good way to sort of funnel those those thoughts without sort of directly going to your kid and being like, I think you're gay. You were playing tea parties yesterday. <laughs> you know what I mean? I really did appreciate Laura, uh, Lauren saying, like, I, I think a lot of these uh, are like commentaries that parents end up making or caregivers are really gendered. You know, like when my brother came out, my mom immediately was like, oh yeah, I used to take your sister's dolls and all of this stuff. And I was like, that's weird. Like, why are you saying that? You know, it's like not useful. And my brother was like, well, if you knew, why didn't you tell me? So I could have like not suffered for like five years trying to build up this conversation. Like it's, it's a really, um, interesting way that parents almost like don't I get the impression that sometimes they don't want to be left out of the loop they're like oh yeah I knew I knew for sure like you know we don't have control over who they become we can only kind of provide like the the best environment you know within what we have so it's an interesting uh way to kind of reflect on how we respond to like, even what is gay behavior? Like what is gay behavior? I don't know. (laughs) What does that even mean? It's interesting though, because it's heavily, you know, we adopted a lot of these gender stereotypes within queer communities that we've also rejected at the same time. So I think we're in a place of kind of dismantling a little bit of what that presents like in children because I when people say oh I knew he was gay because of this I'm like how is that gay it's only gay if you're gay already like it can't it could be anything I'm curious sort of shifting to talking about kids a little bit I mean not that we haven't been talking about kids but sort of from the perspective of kids you know if a child in your life has come out to you you know how I'm curious you know how how do they do it and how did you respond or if you know if that hasn't happened you know how could you respond? And this doesn't need to be like a verbatim thing, but, you know, just ways, ways that you would, um, things that you might say or ways that you would react. No, I wish I could remember verbatim what happened when, uh, when what we said when my son came out to us. Um, I, you know, I mentioned earlier the um, ways that I, I would hope we, and I think we did respond by and large that way. Uh, and, you know, the, the making it about them, how, how do you feel about that? Um, you know, thank you for sharing that information. I can say that I, I wish that I had taken some time before he came to me with it to explain that the, the notion of sexual orientation being on a spectrum and that there might be times where he might feel like, well, you know, I'm not, maybe I'm not gay or maybe I'm, I'm, I feel this way or maybe I, this term better applies to me. In fact, my son and his classmates in sixth and seventh grade, a number of them took to describing themselves as asexual. You know, I, I, I don't know ultimately, we can't say that didn't come from them 
We can't say that if our kid says that they're gay, that isn't as genuine as someone saying that they're asexual. I think there were a part of it that came went into that was an understanding that that man not having sex and they're not having sex, therefore they're asexual, right? Which is which opens up a whole other need for education. We we live in this world that's changing, but by and large, especially outside of our homes, is still either or. And so I think it's an important part of how we support our kids or our friends' kids or you know nieces and nephews, if possible, to understand that in, in the midst of their uh, coming to understanding of their identity in a way that they feel comfortable sharing it, we have a responsibility to help them understand how that actually fits with the lived experiences of, of, of sexual orientation being on the spectrum. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really, really important. And, you know, like we were talking about this idea that um, I think, at least for me, even when I had an understanding that there were other sexual orientations, it was like lesbian and gay and maybe bi. I don't know when I, I feel like bisexuality is still something that is widely misunderstood and widely you know, not, not really talked about or given a lot of good representation, but I, you know, so I feel like it's really important to talk about that idea that, you know, there's lots of, you know, different, however you feel there's, there's, you're likely not the only one who is feeling that way. And I think that, you know, and like you were saying that it's okay if you're, you know, whether your identity changes or whether you find a word that you feels like a better fit, you know, you might identify with one word for a long time and then find another word and you're like, no, that's the one. Um, and I think that's the beauty of self-identifying and choosing the words that feel good to us, you know, and you know what, if you don't like the words, make one up. That's basically, that's how, you know, it's so funny. I was reading something recently where somebody was accusing, you know, some kind of word like asexuality or whatever, being a made up word. And I was just like, all words are made up. Where do you think words come from? The word tree? Like they don't just fall down. Yeah. I actually, Jason said, I wish I could remember verbatim what I said. I have some, some language that I have a tendency to use. My child is too. So he has not told me what his sexual orientation is yet, but I, I've had several students come out to me and my response is usually something along the lines of how wonderful I think that is, whatever their sexual orientation or gender identity might be. And then I usually say, thank you for feeling like you could share this information about yourself with me um, to honor that this probably wasn't easy. And I, and I'm grateful to be, an adult in their life that they trust with this information. Um, and then I usually ask if there's anything I, I can do for them that I, how I can help them support them, or if there's anything they want to talk about. Usually when kids want to talk further, they want to talk about how to come out with how to come out to their parents or their friends. And I'll usually try and, and probe a little further to see um, what the what the attitudes of the parents or the friends are. And if they think that, you know, if they generally think their friends will be accepting, um, I give them some advice about, you know, picking a good time and place to tell a friend and how they can and what to say and what to do if the friend doesn't respond in the way they hope and um, things like that. Um, and if it's the parents, um, if they're really not sure how their parent is going to react, um, or if they think the parent is going to react negatively. Um, I try and give some advice while, while reminding them that their safety is the most important thing. And unfortunately we still live in times where kids who are coming out as queer or trans might experience some type of abuse or violence at home if they, if they do come out. So I really try and say that 
if it's not safe for you to come out, that really, like, that sucks. It's terrible. It shouldn't, like, it shouldn't be, but it is. Um, but I also try and, and, and not to be too, too flip, but I also say, you know, in a few years when you're out of the house and you're, you know, in college, you have a job, you're supporting yourself, you have a community, you have a community of, of friends and other supporters around you coming out will be a safer thing to do and that it sucks to have to wait, but your safety is the most important thing. Yeah, I think that's that's really important. I think sometimes there could be this sort of not elitism isn't the right word, but this idea that like it, the best thing to do is to come out. Like you have to do it. I don't know. I feel like there's a little bit of a pressure sometimes, and I think that it's really important to remember that you know taking care of yourself and your safety is is important. Is the most is the most important. Well, just like from a professional perspective, because my kids haven't identified any orientation yet. We'll see. But uh, work in, in my professional life, I'm encountered with this conversation often. And, you know, a lot of what Lauren is saying is like a really a thorough assessment of safety and also a really uh, intersectional understanding of cultural competency because it is a privilege to come out easily to a family. And I don't think a lot of young people that I work with have that privilege. And so we work around, you know, identifying key adult carers who can be that person for for the time being until they leave the family home, until, you know, whatever's happening um, kind of passes at home, or sometimes it never does. And that's also a process of accepting the limitations, uh, you know, of a, of a birth family uh, versus our chosen family. And I really try to reinforce building community around young people that is safe, that can't necessarily be provided at home. You know, the kids I see are in a, you know, I work in a mental health hospital in psychiatry. So already we're dealing with other stigma compiled with other, you know, and even being out to healthcare professionals is a big deal because, you know, healthcare is very gendered and it's problematic. And uh, so I think, you know, really making sure that they are safe is a really primary goal for me. And, you know, making sure they have, the right resources in case they get outed somehow, because that also happens, which is unfortunate. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's all about building up those resources for sure. Sort of on the flip side of this, of this conversation, are there, and I usually try to stick with the positive of like, what should we do, but are there any sort of things, you know, ways that maybe we shouldn't respond if we know when a kid comes out to us, the thing that I was thinking of, what is a, from a personal experience of, oh, it's just a phase, that that kind of response uh, was given to me. And so I'm curious if there are things that maybe we should look out for or be aware of in our responses. Well, I want to echo um, Lauren and, and Mary Ann's important um, uh, comment and direction around safety. I think that the LGBTQ movement in the United States has had a mantra for a long time, come out, come out, come out. You need to come out. Being out is 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 is, is what you need to do to be you know good to yourself. Um, uh, and and the gains made in terms of social change, not just in legal and policy issues, have created uh, situations and opportunities where kids. You know, my son was was eleven. You know, kids younger and younger are uh, understanding that sense of self. But we have not created a safe space for them then to live in 
and do that. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I feel um, that the, the movement has not taken responsibility for doing that. And then even, even more so has not focused enough attention on the needs of LGBTQ youth, especially those who are abused at home, uh, cast aside the, the, you know, up to 40% um, uh, who are, make up the homeless minor population in, in New York City, you know, in other places. The, the focus has not been on, okay, well, now that this has happened, what are we going to do to make it safe for our kids? And what are we going to do for those kids who lose um, support from family and are out on their own at too young an age? And so I, I agree. Um, the, the, for, for those who are fortunate enough to be mentors, teachers, um, medical health providers who may hear these from kids, that uh, it's critical that that conversation around personal safety and and how to have it and to maintain it override any sense of you know marching down the street with rainbow flags and sort of as good as that can be the message that it can send to kids who don't understand the threat to their safety and uh, what can happen or, or just are so caught up in the feeling the wonderful feeling of. Of, of kind of understanding and you know that you know, when I was young it was about wearing rainbow rings uh, doesn't, the kids don't do that anymore but uh, you know yeah so keep, keep the kids safe yeah absolutely I did a little bit of googling and I found two pretty good articles they're both targeted at the hetero- heterosexual parents of queer kids um, and they basically one is like what not to one is like straight up what not to say and the other one is sort of is some things not to say and some things to say when your child comes out to you. And a couple of the nots include don't ignore, don't say you knew all along, don't tell them it's just a phase, and don't use religion to shame them. But there are also some really good do's. As we said earlier, to tell the person you believe them, that you love them, to thank them for telling you, to ask what kind of support they need. And then the last one on this article was to get support for yourself because we don't want, we don't want to, ultimately this is about a person's child and their child's journey, but having a queer child or a trans child can be a difficult learning experience for a parent Um, and learning how to love and care for your child sometimes in new ways is also a journey. So Getting support from PFLAG, for example, um, or finding other um, finding support groups or um, other resources, like finding a community of other parents who are on this journey, and just like remember that it's about loving and supporting your child. Um, and if you need support to love and support your child, definitely get that. Yeah, I think that's so important that idea of getting getting resource, you know, gathering resources for yourself and getting support for yourself and also not putting, you know, not making your child the educator. Of course, you know, it's okay to ask, you know, to ask questions and do things like that, but not to make your child the default or primary educator and to be getting your own resources. And then maybe going back to your child and being like, you know, I read this, is that, you know, is that true? Or is that, you know, do you feel that way or what, whatever? But I think, you know, that, that also shows that you're invested, uh, if you're sort of going on your own and and doing your own research and things like that. And also like you, you do need that support. It's a big change for you as well. And I think that's a good way to not put that onus on the kid. I would only say that 
if a caregiver, parent, or adult ally to a child makes the wrong statement, to go back and apologize and to own to own that, whether it's a month later or years later, because that apology is holds a lot of value. I think parents will never, no one will ever get it right necessarily. You'll either be too excited or disappointed, or you know, it's a spectrum of, of feelings. Um, but I think that we, as adults, are not good at apologizing when we mess up to young people, and that apology can do a lot of reparation. Whether it's you know, like listen. I didn't know how to respond. I shouldn't have said those things to you. You know, I know better now. I understand. I read this book or I connected here. You know, like taking ownership for um, the reaction, I think, is a really critical piece that often isn't, uh, it's hard for a child to hold an adult accountable. You know, it works the other way, but not, (laughs) not child to adult. So I think being able to apologize and just really open, being open and not even being overly excited is too much, you know, because then it's like, what if they change their mind? And then they're like, Oh God, now I have to tell you I'm straight again. Like, I don't know. Like (laughs) it's such a spectrum. So I think, you know, really regulating yourself through a conversation is probably a really important piece. Yeah, absolutely. I know when, when I first came out to my mother as trans, I was dating, I was dating my wife at the time and my mother was like, why can't you just be a lesbian? And then like, you know, I I don't know, months, six months, a year later, she, I had suggested that she read Transgender 101 by Nick Tate, which is a wonderful, just like primer. I read it when I was first like, am I trans? And uh, it's just a really good book. It's like very simple, but doesn't feel like you're being spoken down to, like you're stupid, you know what I mean? But but anyway, as she had read that book and then got back to me, it was like she called me one day, I was like, I realize now why it was not great for me to just tell you to be a lesbian. I was like, okay, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, but I think it is, and it did uh, you know, it mean a lot to me. And I even as like an you know, an adult child, um, I think it is really important. And I always, just in general, I think it's important as adults to realize that, like, we can be wrong and, like, to, you know, I will often say, like, if a kid asks me something, I'll be like, well, I don't know. Let's look it up. Like, I have no idea. You know, I think admitting that we don't know things and admitting that we can be wrong um, is is really, really important for kids to see, too. Yes, I just want to add on, on the issue to, around safety and how we respond when, when uh, kids come out. One of the biggest mistakes that my husband and I made was presuming that the New York City school system was universally a safe space. I wrote a book with, with a colleague called LGBT Youth in America Schools. And uh, now, you know, was it hubris? Was it just focus on, on policy? I, I cited New York City Department of Education as a model for other school systems around the nation to implement uh, programs and policies that support LGBT students. And unfortunately, that was not the case for the school that my son attended in sixth and seventh grade, so much so that we had to emergency transfer him out to a new school at, towards the end of seventh grade. And and I think amidst our um, family, our family of choice, if, if a youth is, is fortunate enough to be with a family that fully loves, supports, and protects them, that uh, we need to be aware of what's on the outside and also not make presumptions. You know, in the case of New York City, it's really, schools are set up like little fiefdoms. You know, principals are, are given almost complete universal control 
over a school, what what um, trainings are being given, what the response is to bullying and harassment that may occur. And schools in the same district can be very different, even if they're less than a mile away. Um, so that's just something I, I, I wanted to make sure that people could be aware of as well. I think that that, you know, unfortunately it's really, it's really tricky. Like even here in Montreal where I am, I know it's, it's very individualistic. It seems to be, you know, just talking to other parents and knowing which schools are more safe and which schools aren't. And I know at least when I, when I um, was living in New York city and nannying there for a long time, uh, unfortunately a lot of the, you know, more, School schools that felt safer to people were private schools, which are not accessible to everyone, which is a whole nother a whole nother issue. But um, but thank you for for bringing that up. So I'm curious, sort of, how we can help normalize. We were talking a lot about you know the the LGB, but how we can normalize you know other sexualities like asexuality, demisexuality, pansexuality, those kinds of things for kids. I mean, I I hesitate to even define asexuality because it has like a thousand different. <laughs> definitions um but essentially um you know somebody who does does not want to engage with sex um in some ways or always demisexuality is more of a sexuality where you have to sort of be feel emotionally connected to a person before wanting to engage with sex with them and uh pansexuality is um the idea of like you know someone who um is interested in all uh, all genders and a lot of people uh, it sort of overlaps with the definition of bisexuality, depending on how you define it. Um, like for personally, for me, I um, I'm bisexual, and I define that as being attracted to my people who identify as my gender and other genders. So, sort of depending on your definition of bisexuality, pansexuality can kind of overlap with that. Well, and you know, my my son ended up teaching us us about that. You know, uh, I you met when he came home and said, "Oh, I just met you know my friend so and so," and he he says he's pansexual. And I was, I was like, I, I, I did not let on and I didn't know what that was, which is a shame because that would have been a really helpful moment, helpful uh, teaching and parenting, humble moment, um, and, and looked it up. Um, but, you know, one of, one of the ways that my son actually educated himself on those things, he, he on his own got into all the various flags and then ended up order, asking us to order him online a set of flags that, that represent different sexual orientations, gender identities, and he has them lined up on the headboard of his bed in his room. Yeah, and you know, this, that was a way that, that we learned uh, uh, about it, and, um, you know, and, and uh, it shows just, even though I had done work in the LGBT movement for 17 years, the fact that I didn't know that I don't want to express shame because shame can prevent people from getting education, but it shows just how important that education is. We shouldn't presume that based on people's work, their experience, their their own lives, that um, that they understand what that means. And I also think it speaks to the criticality of you know sex education outside of the home, and that we have inclusive, age appropriate education. I felt that your definitions were were pretty much spot on. Um, the one thing I would say is that a lot of people, like maybe an, maybe an alternative or adding on definition for pansexuality is that it's a person who feels their potential to be attracted to any person regardless of their gender. Because this is like, this is my wheelhouse, right? Like standing up in front of a classroom of high school students and the kid and, and answering exactly these questions. This is, this is my job. This is my job. 
although not in the not in the current times. Uh, but in terms of the the question, how to normalize what asexuality, demisexuality, pansexuality, and you know, you could go on and on and on, really. And when I was thinking about the question, the way I framed it is that if you talk about something as though it's normal, your kid will think it's normal. So even if you don't know a whole lot about a particular issue, if you stick, if you stay positive, stick to the facts and be affirming of what your child thinks about, thinks about it, like you'll, you'll be like, you know, 95% of the way there. Um, and I wrote some, some like sample sentences of like, if your child is talking to you about this, what you could say, let's say your child is ace and they're experiencing frustration that all their friends seem really into sex right now. You could say, wow, that's really frustrating that all of your friends are really into sex right now. And you're not really like affirm that what your child is experiencing is normal and maybe offer a suggestion or something to jump off of. Do you have friends with whom you share other interests that you can hang out with? Like, who are your friends who are really into Minecraft? Do you want to go hang out with them? Or saying like, you know, so-and-so also isn't really interested in having sex with anyone, someone that they don't really have strong feelings for. There are other people who are like you, who are like this. Or yes, last time, you saw so-and-so, they were dating person X, and now they're dating person Y. And yes, those people have different genders. And that's, and, you know, lots of people date people who have different genders, you know. Anyway, just to reiterate, stay positive, stick to the facts, and be affirming of what your child is experiencing or is thinking. Yeah, I think all of that is so important. And like you were saying, like, if you do, you know, if there are people in their lives, and those people are comfortable, you know, with you either outing them or, you know, talking about that, or, you know, I think it's great to use those kinds of examples, um, and say, oh, you know, so and so is asexual, too. And, uh, and of course, please always ask people before outing them. Celebrities or media characters are also really good. Because if a celebrity is out, you know what their persona is. And if it's a media character, they don't, you know, they're not real anyway. And I know there's a question later about going to come up about media, but I just want to say like, if there are, if you, if there are no real people, fake people or celebrities, not that celebrities are fake people, but like no people in your life, there are, there are other sources of examples. You know, I was going to say like books and character, you know, cartoon characters and things like that. But celebrities is one that I would not have thought of. That's a really great, uh, just because I'm not a big celebrity buff, but uh, that's a really good, uh, a good one. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, Marianne, do you have anything to add? I think I would just add that we really privilege romantic relationships over platonic And I think emphasizing the value of having amazing platonic, non-romantic relationships is really important. There's like a hierarchy, you know, it's like we all go around searching for love, like, but love has to come in this way and it has to feel this and you're supposed to be, you know, attracted and in love and in lust. And I think that it's a disservice because it sets up, uh, you know, attraction to be very binary, you are or aren't. 
but also that one person can provide you everything. And that's impossible. I think platonic relationships, yeah, (laughs) correct, a thousand percent. (laughs) But platonic relationships for kids who are on the spectrum of all the queer acronyms, like are very significant and can be um, really liberating in finding like their people, you know? And then so only having this romantic, non-romantic idea is damaging even for, for people who are straight because then you like have this only one person. It's like devastating. That's a lot of pressure. Yeah. I, I also think for me, when when I was living in New York City, I had had a roommate who was polyamorous, meaning they had multiple partners. Um, they had like a, a primary partner who was sort of like their, you know, their did tr- the traditional boyfriend things with them. And then they had what they called secondary partners, which are more, more like, you know, people who either, you know what, they do that one sex thing I like. So we get together and have sex sometimes, or they, you know, they had one who was like, they're my like, older, more settled adult person who like, I, when I need that kind of energy, I go to them. And that was the first time that I ever, you know, saw polyamory, um, up close and personal. I don't even, I know that I knew that it existed before then, to be totally honest with you. And, um, and that was something that going along that, that line of like, well, I mean, a, like not even knowing that that was an option, but B that idea that it's so difficult to like, you can't expect one person to be everything for you. And whether you get that from platonic relationships or other partners, I think it's a really uh, helpful model. Um, an idea that like is to be able to see, like I have a friend who has, uh, gosh, I guess her son is about 12 and her and her partner are both polyamorous and like, you know, just him able to being able to see like, Hey, like my parents don't, you know, they can get things from other places and they're not depending on one another for everything. Because I think that it can be really hard when you're expecting one person to be everything you want. It's impossible. (laughs) But I think that's another sort of another thing that's helpful to, you know, just make kids aware of that, like it's a thing that exists and an option. So as we're sort of tying things up here, I'm just curious if we, if any of you have resources either for kids or adults um, that are helpful, whether it be books, TV shows, websites, anything. I mentioned earlier that um, my colleague and I, Dr. Sean Cahill in 2012, released a book called LGBT Youth in America Schools. While the, the prime focus is on um, school policy, procedure, uh, experiences of youth in schools, um, a key part of that is um, a explanation, a uh, summary of the research around um, sexual orientations, gender identities, um, and how those affect the, the overall experiences of children as they grow up. And that book is available um, on Amazon or at the University of Michigan Press. One of the things that I have um, really come to appreciate, and it needs to be shared with a caveat that just because there are good TV shows doesn't mean that they're perfect or that they're going to explain everything, um, is watching shows like uh, Big Mouth with my son, um, which I believe is on Netflix. Being able to see issues and concerns expressed in a way that fosters conversation, including when those representations are wrong. Like for example, when I saw articles about how problematic um, a particular episode was around representation of, of gender identity issues, I was able to talk with him about that. Also just by making something like that a part of your household popular culture, it, it also fo- fosters the open and free expression and communication around things um, that you know, we, we um, 
have tried to create. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, that's so important is building that critical, you know, reading of media and being able to watch it and say, hmm, like, what do you think about the fact that that just happened, you know, or, you know, even like pausing things and saying like, hmm, I'm noticing this. What do you think about that? Um, I think that we forget sometimes that we have that kind of control or even when we're reading books, we can we can skip things. And, you know, if the kids are old enough to notice, we can say, well, why do you think I skipped that page? Or why do you think I changed that ending? <laughs> um, I, I just am thinking about one particular time that I was reading. It was one of the first times that I had babysat when I moved to New York, I hadn't babysat in a long time. And I had this like book of fairy tales that my mother used to read to me when I was a kid. And I was like, oh, like, that'll be sweet. I'll read fairy tales. And I was reading um, Sleeping Beauty. In the end, it was like, and then the prince came and kissed her. And then they got married the next day. And I was like, absolutely not. And so I was like, uh, and then, you know, he like tapped her on the shoulder, woke her up. And, uh, and then the next day, you know, and then they, they dated for a couple of years and they decided that they, they liked each other and, <laughs> and they decided that marriage was a thing for them. So they wanted to get married, you know, but I just like off the cuff made up this whole ending. And I mean, she was three, so she didn't notice, but I was just like, you know what? I have the power to do that. If I'm just like, this is toxic. I don't want to read this. <laughs> I would say that I f- sort of focused my list on uh, the young on a younger range of ages. Um, so like zero, probably like zero to twelve. I would say this stuff is a range for. Someone mentioned earlier the book Families, 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 which I had never heard of, but but uh, sort of along the same lines of books about families. Um, there's a wonderful book, one of my son's favorites. It's called Love Makes a Family by Sophie Beer. And each page has a different sort of family permutation on it with caregivers of all different ages and colors. And some of the families have one parent and some have two. And some of them are same gender, presumed same gender families. And some are different. Like One of them is like like a dad having a tea party with a little kid or like, you know, it's it's very it's very good. It's a great, it's a great book. And um, it's very, very sweet. Um, Also, The Family Book by Todd Parr, which is along the lines of some families this and some families that. Also, The Great Big Book of Families by Mary Hoffman. And then sort of getting into talking about sex or sexual orientation and bodies and fun stuff like that. The two books by Corey Silverberg, Sex is a Funny Word and What Makes a Baby. Um, I also just ordered... I haven't read it yet, so this is not an endorsement, but I or finally, 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 there is an LGBTQ inclusive puberty book that I saw on Amazon. Yep, my friend my friend wrote it and I have a review copy and it's awesome. The Everybody book? Yep. Great. Fantastic. Rachel. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yes. And then some online resources. There's a website, kids-ask.org, which is a question and answer generator. And it's for a range of ages. It's by Planned Parenthood. And it's basically like if your kid asks you a question that you don't feel prepared to answer, you can sort of put the question in and it'll generate a sample response for you. Also, media and there the full episode of Arthur where Mr. Ratburn gets married is on YouTube. It's a, And it's adorable. It's very, very sweet. So the whole episode is... Spoiler, Mr. Ratburn gets married to a man at the end. But during the episode, the kids are trying to stop the wedding because they think Mr. Ratburn is getting married to his, like, super pushy sister. They don't realize she's his sister. And 
what they all, and like ultimately like they're at the wedding and it's like, you know, it's like a really happy occasion, but they're all so relieved that he's not getting married to this super pushy person at the end. It's, it's, it was very, it's a really good episode. It's very, very funny. And then two YouTube channels, queer kid stuff, probably, uh, queer kid stuff. And then amaze.org, which also has a YouTube channel is sex ed videos from that are pro there's a range of ages from like elementary to high. Um, and there's, and there's so much more like, I, like, like this is the short list, right? I, there's, there's so much good stuff out there and there's so much more good stuff than there was when any of us or kids, kids of all genders and sexual orientations are really fortunate to be living in such a, um, in a time when positive media representations and information are available. And like, that's how it should be. It's how it should be. I don't, I like, I always, like, I, like, fortunate is a weird word to use. It's like, you should be grateful how good things are now. Like, that's, that's not, it's like, it's great that things are as good as they are now. And there's always room for improvement. Marianne, did you have any, any resources? I don't have many. The one book that, or the series of books that I've let uh, the kids read, because I have two readers on their own, is um, uh, the uh, It's Not the Stork did a series of books. And uh, my daughter's reading one now. I think it's for like seven to 10 year olds. And it really covers a spectrum of even like how, queer families have babies, which is really lovely because I think that's really interesting for them to see. Um, and for my own personal pleasure, I don't know if you guys have seen on YouTube the They Them's little web series. Oh my God, it's brilliant. And anyone over like 14 can see it, but it's like these short little uh, clips of, uh, you know, three, three queer folks going through all kinds of things and using all the right language and explaining it in detail. Like what is demisexual? What is asexual? Who are you? What's this? What's that? It's amazing. So if you have nothing to do later, you should watch it. And if your kids liked um, It's Not the Stork, the Everybody book is basically like the inclusive oh, version of those books. It's, re it's really great. I mean, it has like, I mean, it has things like there's a, a pregnant trans man depicted. There's like the, the picture, the page that's about like sexual intercourse shows two men, uh, you know, cuddling in bed. Like it's really, it's really wonderful um, and just very inclusive. And like, I honestly, the only... Only, like if I was being nitpicky, the only problem I could like, quote unquote problem I could find or thing that I felt was missing was they don't talk about polyamory at all. But other than that, I was like really, really blown away um, by it. So if they enjoy that, they, they that would also be an appropriate an appropriate book for them probably. Do you, if anyone has any sort of personal projects or websites or things like that that you want to plug, this is the time to do it. Well, thank you again, Seth, for um, having me. I've learned so much um, during this time. Thank you, Lauren and Marianne, as well. You know, my, my personal plug is is related to overall health and safety of LGBTQ youth. My son was one of, um, at any given time, about 140,000 youth in the foster care system in the U.S. who are available for adoption. And the growing body of research is indicating that upwards of 20% or more of those youth um, are LGBTQ youth identified. Um, that's four to five times their representation in the general population. Um, but why that is happening is is the subject of, a, of another podcast, uh, which if you do set that, that'll be a part of. Uh, but, you know, uh, the, the process of, of meeting my son uh, opened my eyes to this world that exists that many progressives and LGBTQ people and allies have no idea is happening. 
and I don't yet know how I'm going to. Um, and I, I think I have some, you know, sort of internal parenting to do before I, I turn a lot of my attention outward. But it really now has become my, my mission to figure out how to have a tangible effect on reducing that overall uh, overrepresentation of LGBT youth in the foster system. And I, I urge everybody who's listening to, to open their eyes to that, to um, uh, take a look at the Heart Gallery website in their community. All you have to do is, is Google Heart Gallery in the state that you live in, or if you're in a big city like New York or LA, that the city, take a look at um, those, those kids, understand that a much higher than in general population uh, portion of them are LGBT and consider whether um, you might be able to open your heart and home to one of those kids. Yeah, thank you so much for that. Uh, Lauren, do you have any anything to plug? Nothing specific. I, I don't know how I can follow Jason, but uh, I was on Jeopardy this year <laughs> and I was on the uh, teachers 2020 teachers tournament and we taped, we taped it right before everything shut down. So if you Google 2020 teachers tournament, you will find me. And also just to plug myself as uh, I can talk about how to talk to kids about sex in general. Oh, I guess that's my plug. Talk to your kids about sex in general. That is, that is my thing. Do not, do not let their friends or the internet or not that watching pornography is bad, but learning about sex from pornography is like learning to drive from watching the fast and the furious. You can learn some cool tricks, but ultimately you need to learn the basics from a, from a real person. That is, that is me. That, that, that it's, I just think that so many, so many parents and caregivers stop, like feel it's like deer in the headlights, you know, their kid comes to them with a question about sex and they feel completely unprepared and it's okay to feel unprepared, but there's so much out there for you to get prepared. And there are lots of people here to help. And I hope that for any parent who is listening, you're not alone. These are not easy conversations to have, but the, but they are skills that can be developed. And and good luck to you in your journey. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Marianne, do you have anything to add? I would just say that I think you know we have a responsibility as uh, as parents, you know, educators, as adult allies for youth to continue to push uh, the system and challenge the way that young folks are not listened to and not accounted for and continue to invest in our communities to local queer organizations that are providing the peer support, the crisis lines, the emergency shelter, because, you know, with the times that we're in, I think that um, it's easy to get lost uh, into who to give your money to. But, you know, I always really believe in starting where you live. And if you can't give money, give your time or books or whatever you can do. But uh, to continuously invest uh, in their well-being, really. Before we go, I just want to give you the opportunity, if you want people to be able to find you on social media, uh, where can they find you? You know, in general, because I, I uh, talk about my family a lot, I tend to keep my um, Facebook profile not public. 
though I'm always open to making new friends. Uh, um, and uh, I'm, I'm the only person with my first and last name in the world, as far as I know, Jason Cianciato. So it's pretty easy to find me. You can find me on, on Twitter at Jason Cianciato. I'm also a, um, a moderator with a, a great group of people of a, um, a group on Facebook called Rainbow Dads. Um, even though we have dad in the title that is not um, you know, gender specific, um, and so uh, if you are thinking about um, having a child uh, or already have one and, and uh, either way looking for a sense of community, um, you know, we'd love to have, um, have you in that group. Awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, Lauren, do you have anything for that? I do not have a public social media presence, but if you had a question that you wanted someone to answer, there is a fabulous Facebook group called What Do I Say? Answering Children's Questions. It is, it is sort of a general parenting group under the, under the sort of auspices of the visible child philosophy, philosophy. So it's about answering children's questions. And if you happen to join that group and have a question, maybe I'll see it and answer it for you. Marianne, did you have anything for that one? My Facebook is open and it's my first and last name. Uh, and my Instagram, that's, that's just for really close friends. Oh, it's uh, Marianne. Scarfo. So again, a very unique, easy to find. So jealous. Do you know how many Seth days there are? Too many. Oh, and, and Seth, if I may, the, because we've talked about some heavy topics and we all need some levity in my life, I'd love to also plug um, my husband is a drag queen um, by, goes by the name of Cacophony Daniels. You can uh, check her out at cacophonydaniels.com. And when you, after you've had those really challenging conversations or you get asked that question about sex by your child that makes your eyes pop out and you need to get some, some levity and some laugh, um, <laughs> it'd be very helpful. I love that. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much, all of you, for being here. It's, this has been such a wonderful conversation. And remember, stay rad. I'm Tom Zalatnai, host and producer of Up for Discussion, the emotionally honest comedy podcast. What does that mean? It means we're not afraid to get vulnerable, explore the human side of comedy, and be super duper open about the ways that we're struggling to become better people along the way. Still have no idea what I'm talking about? Fair enough. Come give us a listen. The Up for Discussion podcast, available on the Upford Network and wherever else you get your podcasts. campers. My name is Emmett, and I'm the host of Gaze in the Woods, a podcast that explores rural LGBTQIA2 plus experiences, from radical fairies and lesbian farmers to backwoods slam poets and community organizers organizing communities the community didn't know where they were all along. Can you have a pride parade when you're the only gay in the village? What is camp when you live in a trailer? And if a genderqueer bear shares their pronouns in the forest and nobody gets it, is anything real? I don't know, but let's find out together on Gaze in the Woods, an Upford Network podcast.